This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. For as long as there have been babies, there have been debates over how to feed them. But it feels as though in recent years, particularly in the United States, debates ranging from prenatal care to preventative reproductive care to even just basic tenets of health coverage, like whether or not someone should qualify for a package based off of a pre-existing condition, all of these elements of how we secure the welfare, well-being, and trust of individuals and their longevity and prosperity have really been politicized. Earlier this week, it was revealed that the Trump administration actually opposed an international resolution to encourage breastfeeding, stunning maternal health advocates, and drawing swift criticism from around the globe, including from Lucy Sullivan, the executive director of 1000 Days, a nonprofit focused on maternal health advocacy. But this isn't the first time the United States has rejected such a measure. From declarations in the 1940s by the U.S. government that agencies should encourage breastfeeding to litigation over how formula manufacturers for infant formula should even market their products to even the Reagan administration pulling out from votes, critical votes at the World Health Organization, applauding and supporting breastfeeding, the very notion of how we nourish our children and the resources, tools, and basic education and literacy around those resources seem to have divided cultural generation time and time again, with each decade offering new insights into not only the science behind formula manufacturing, but also new insights around the culture and debates around breastfeeding. But even the news of President Donald Trump trying to undermine breastfeeding at the United Nations Global Health Meeting this past week seems to have reached a new height of politicization, aligning itself seemingly, as critics have said, with the $70 billion baby formula industry only really adds one piece to the puzzle. Layer on top of that, the politicization by this administration and this Congress and prior Congresses around the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, the move this past week actually sent a powerful signal that expanding breastfeeding access won't be a priority for this administration. And if you try and undermine the very notion of what Obamacare covers, including access to preventative and maternal care, then you layer on top of that a very grim outcome only underscored by the administration's own spokesperson, Caitlin Oakley, who recently said on behalf of the Department of Health and Human Services that the United States, quote, was fighting to protect women's abilities to make the best choices for the nutrition of their babies. So is this about choice? Is this about aligning itself with corporate interests on the formula industry side? Or is this about something else altogether? Far-ranging ideologies with splits and gaps and splits in perspective are no stranger to broader debates in American healthcare. But something seems different now. The very notion of an administration retreating from science, endorsing an American first posture, and as a result, pulling out of standard tenets of core values in multilateral bodies like the United Nations or the World Health Organization, has really put in question where America's moral compass and moral authority might be when it comes to global health leadership. No stranger to that debate, joining us today is the executive director of 1,000 Days, Lucy Martinez-Sullivan. 
At 1,000 Days, Lucy leads a team of fierce advocates working on behalf of women and children in the U.S. and throughout the world, specifically focused on the resources, the awareness, and the advocacy that can create the best outcomes in the 1,000 days between a child being born and right around the time that they turn two. Hailing from work previously on behalf of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wildlife Conservation Society, and even the UN Foundation, Lucy has staked a career focused on how public and private investments can help guide a career and a world focused on health outcomes around the country and in the United States. But at a time where the United States wants to treat that public health debate as a political football, what does this actually mean for our own moral identity and can we still lead? Lucy Sullivan, thank you so much for joining American Enough. It's great to be here, Vikram. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And we know it's been an incredibly busy week. Um, I kind of want to start by informing our listeners of the context of what happened um, at the World Health Assembly meeting this week. But I kind of want to frame it with this overarching notion that both today and, you know, frankly, throughout the 20th century, there have been vast debates about the benefits of infant formula versus sort of the more natural organic breastfeeding approach. Why would something that seemed as obvious as the health benefits of breastfeeding that have been empirically backed up and validated by organization, not just organization after organization, not just here at home, but around the world, why would that still be subject to debate in this modern day of science and this modern day of understanding of public health? Well, the short answer is money. Uh, Infant formula is a very, very lucrative industry. Uh, The uh, formula industry globally is about $70 billion. So that's $70 billion a year in sales of of infant formula and i think that just goes to show um the you know the the incredible um market that there is uh for baby formula um the you you're absolutely right the science around breastfeeding um should be a settled matter it is uh by far the best nutrition that a child can get uh it has vast benefits uh for both moms and babies and we talk a lot about the benefits of breastfeeding for young children um but even there are really important benefits for for mothers who breastfeed as well because breastfeeding is part of the natural reproductive cycle uh so breastfeeding protects women against ovarian cancer and breast cancer and heart disease which is a leading killer of women here in the United States uh, but that's not the message that we get. We um, we are told that uh, it's you know it's about choice, as you mentioned. It's about you know your choice to breastfeed or uh, to formula feed. And and the formula companies have done a really um, outstanding job of uh, making infant formula seem as good as 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 breast milk. Uh, if you look at the packages of uh, of many of the infant formula products, you'll you'll note that it says it makes claims, uh, some of the products make claims like you know, inspired by breast milk or as close as possible to breast milk or modeled after breast milk. Because even the infant formula companies realize that breastfeeding is the absolute gold standard in nutrition for, for babies, in health. Um, and um, one of the things that we, we don't talk enough about either is sort of the, the cognitive benefits to children uh, of breastfeeding. It, studies have shown that longer durations of breastfeeding are associated with higher IQ in children. Uh, and even formula companies have, have tried to jump on that bandwagon, uh, adding in ingredients that are found in, in breast milk uh, to infant formula and then claiming that 
these these formulas are going to make your babies smarter. Um, this is particularly common in Asia. Um, so Asian countries are um, some of the fastest growing markets uh, for infant formula companies, uh, and that's because of uh, birth rates as well as increased urbanization, higher incomes. Uh, so the the formula companies see these these markets as as absolutely critical to their long term growth strategies, um, and they they use uh, the claims around you know that this product is going to make your child smarter uh, to really appeal to Asian consumers who are um, are like many parents uh, wanting their their kids to be the smartest and and you know set them up to succeed later in life. Uh, so I think it's it's really interesting uh, to to sort of study the the marketing of these products um, and to understand that at the end of the day the debate um, you know around infant feeding has a lot to do with the bottom line and that's that's certainly what was um, on display at the World Health Assembly I think uh, in in May when the United States tried to first kill the resolution uh, the breastfeeding resolution it was um, by all accounts um, the original resolution was non-controversial the original resolution set out to uh, make countries aware of new guidance and tools that the World Health Organization put together and just reaffirm the value of breastfeeding and and what was the does a resolution like that that appears in front of this body um, is that something that is more symbolic in scope or if a resolution like that was agreed upon unanimously by all countries, would there be some actionable steps that they would be on the hook for following up around? Yeah, so this, this is a great question. And, and this particular resolution, uh, as we said, was, was really not controversial. It wasn't um, designed to, uh, you know, make any policy grabs or, or sort of, you know, reshape uh, the policy landscape around breastfeeding. It was really quite, quite simply was to uh, reiterate uh, the importance of breastfeeding to meeting the, the sustainable development goals that the world has uh, agreed to. Right. And to make countries aware of, of of the of these tools that were available, so tools like guidance on infant feeding and humanitarian disasters and emergencies, guidance on HIV and breastfeeding, guidance around the baby friendly hospital initiative. Uh, so you know, very much a a plain vanilla type of resolution. And it's it's interesting to me because while it's it's not um, you know improbable to our listeners or even a, a casual and distant observer of politics that any resolution passed by more than one party or interest is always going to be up to debate. It does seem that what you're describing, particularly with the way formula and formula marketers are putting their content and descriptions out there, it hinges on this notion of basic education. And if the modern not only mother, but modern family is, um, you know, put up to balance not only the interests and needs and the vitality of their little one, but look out for their own well-being, look out for their broader family's well-being, perhaps balance um, any extra steps they need to draw an income or put re resources on the table or put a roof over their head. There's a lot going on in everyone's life. So, in the same way that there's a you know an onslaught of news coming at us uh, this in this day, there may be an onslaught of marketing efforts coming at a young mother, particularly concerned at making sure they make the right decision and the best decision for for their little one. And I'm curious if 
um, you know, in this point in time in which you have so many advances around formula, and as you said, being able to uh, mimic or mirror near uh, exact outcomes or results or tastes or, or nutritious, uh, nutrition content of actual breast milk, the formula industry seems to be able to go a step further than just educating what the benefit might be of consuming this product. They get to say, this is going to give you all the glory and all the benefits of the world. Whereas breastfeeding, even if you make those statements, they seem a little bit more grounded in in facts and science and data that should be undisputable. But because the, the, the formula industry has this veneer of a marketing apparatus behind it, um, does that change the way that basic education works? Or is there room on both sides of the ledger to describe um, with com- complete intellectual honesty and objectivity what each uh, product would provide and what each outcome would provide the little one and the growth over time? Right. That's that's a great question. Uh, so the World Health Organization recommends three things for, for babies um, in terms of their nutrition. The first thing is breastfeeding. So breastfeeding, as I said, is, is the gold standard in infant feeding and infant nutrition for all the, the health uh, and developmental reasons uh, we talked about. The second is if breastfeeding is not available. So the second choice is human milk. So human donor milk um, is the, the second best choice. Uh, but we know in this country and, and in many parts of the world, uh, we don't have access to human donor milk banks and it's very, very difficult for, for women to, you know, to go uh, and find uh, donated breast milk, um, and, and she may not feel comfortable feeding that to her baby. So the third choice is, is infant formula, and the World Health Organization absolutely recognizes that there are babies who need to use formula, and it supports the safe use of formula when needed. So it's not a question of whether the product should exist or the product should, should be out there. The question does become around the marketing of the product. So uh, there's this thing called the International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes, a.k.a. the code. And the code was adopted in 1981, in part in reaction to the tens of thousands of babies that were dying uh, in developing countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, as a result of the aggressive marketing push by formula companies at the time. And that aggressive, that aggressive push um, by formula companies um, definitely undermined women's confidence to breastfeed. Women were misusing uh, the product, mixing it with dirty water, and babies suffered. Uh, they suffered as a result uh, of, these, of these marketing tactics, which included things like dressing uh, salespeople up in, in nurses' outfits. And you know, having them uh, oh, wow. give the product away to, to to unsuspecting mothers and mothers who would start using the product, they would stop uh, lactating. Their their breasts wouldn't make any more milk, um, and then they couldn't go back to um, to nursing their babies, and they didn't have enough money for formula, and that's why babies got sick, malnourished, and died. So the code resulted was a result of that um, you know that awful period in in history. Uh, and it basically it, it was adopted by the World Health Organization, or excuse me, the World Health Assembly in 1981. And what it is, it's a non-binding instrument. It sets out a recommended basis for action um, that uh, that countries need to regulate and monitor the marketing of formula. And since the code was passed in 1981. 
there have been other resolutions uh, that have come down to extend the, the scope uh, of the code and the application. Why? Because companies uh, devise new marketing tactics. Um, and at its most basic, the code does a few things that are really important. Number one, no promotion to the public. That means no direct marketing to moms. You talked about how moms are bombarded with messages and information, um, but the code actually prohibits that. It said no direct contact with pregnant women or moms of babies and, and young children, so no advertising. And we take that for granted in the United States where we have advertising you know, for so many things, including Absolutely. and especially baby formula. Yeah. The code does other things like you know, ban gifts to, to mothers and health workers and promotion in healthcare systems. Why is this important? Because formula companies realize that the healthcare workers and physicians and nurses were some of the best marketing agents for their products. Um, and the code said, you know what, that's unethical. You have to stop doing that. You can't use the healthcare system and healthcare workers to, to market your products. So a lot of what is being debated right now is what is the appropriate marketing of, of formula? What is unethical marketing? And, you know, women should be given information about how to feed and choose, feed their babies and what, what products to choose. But why should we be relying on companies to be the purveyors of that information? The information should be evidence-based, and the decision as to how you feed your baby, you should be able to take that as a mother with your physician, with your healthcare provider, someone who understands your own situation, your individual needs, and the needs of your family, and can work with you. But the, also the reality is that many physicians in the U.S., and quite frankly throughout many parts of the world, don't understand breastfeeding and have a hard time because they don't study nutrition and they don't study breastfeeding. They have a hard time actually supporting women who come into their offices and their clinics um, that want to breastfeed. And women, a lot of women, I would say most women probably run into a lot of problems when they try to breastfeed. So it's not just as easy as, okay, I'm going to make a choice and I go down one road and, and then it all works out. Sometimes the truth and the reality is a lot more complicated than that. And it's it's interesting that a lot of this is derivative of kind of rules and and bright line standards that were set in place with what you refer to as the code in in 1981. I think if I have my history correct, um, in that same year, 1981, the the World Health Organization voted on that that code restricting you know the certain promotion of infant formula products in certain ways, and of a hundred and nineteen countries to, to lean in and, and cast a vote, um, only one dissented, and that was the United States. I believe it was under President Reagan at the time, um, who claimed that the issue was one of free speech. Um, similarly, you know, back uh, earlier on in the, in, the, in the introduction of our conversation, um, there was, we heard from, um, or sorry, there's I cited a quote from uh, a spokesperson from the Department of Health and Human Services who spoke about choice. Um, there may be many who who empathize with these uh, arguments and say that things like free speech or things like choice or things like access to a variety or battery of options is quite important. But even if you accept that premise, it would seem to me, and, and you, you alluded to this, that if you want to talk about different choices and different options out there, that's one thing. But then the government um, or any sort of body with authority on the topic 
also has a responsibility to do that basic education. And as you said, not just leave it to the laissez-faire approach of the open market, where businesses and corporations would have their own incentives around what that education looks like. Uh, luckily, though, there are organizations like yours. Um, 1000 Days, of course, focuses on m maternal health advocacy around the world, but with a special eye in the namesake for those first two years after an infant is born to invest in the right kinds of um, uh, resources, education, and steps uh, to really give a long, a strong footing for that for that little one. Um, but is it enough for the nonprofit space to fill in this space of education? Is it enough for the way the world works currently in terms of whatever actors are out there trying to encourage mom moms to have the choices and the awareness they need? Or does government need to step up here? And and if this was sort of the case or an argument made in some respects in the Reagan administration and it's being made today in the Trump administration, is this sort of the reality we've been dealing with for the past couple of decades? Or is there something new going on when it comes to the politicization and, and lack of education around this from the government's perspective? Yeah, I think um, it is a little bit of back to the future because the U.S. was uh, the lone dissenting voice in 1981 uh, to vote against uh, the International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes, or the code, and you're right, um, the uh, the administration, Reagan administration, cited at the time that it runs counter to uh, constitutional guarantees of, of free speech and freedom of information, and, and we're seeing some of those arguments being used uh, today uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, but when you think about the information, what it is, who's providing it, who's paying for it, um, you know, the formula companies, the, the industry spends billions of dollars every year on marketing, on marketing their products, on effectively providing that information, quote unquote, uh, to, to consumers. That dwarfs the public health budgets, the, you know, the health um, authorities marketing budget is, I, I assure you, especially focused on breastfeeding, is not in the billions of dollars. Uh, so where, where women, you know, when, where parents are getting, you know, the information and is it a level playing field? I would argue it's not. And this, that's why the, the World Health Assembly resolution battle uh, of a few months ago is so interesting because uh, detractors now want to frame it as you know, it's it's about women getting the right information, and 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 we can't restrict access to to formula. Uh, but it, it's it's a battle of between private profit and public health. Um, and you know, what's what side are you going to stand on? Can can the needle be thread? I actually think in, under the Obama administration, there was a, a controversial resolution. It didn't make the kinds of headlines uh, that that this one made. Uh, but there was a controversial resolution in, in 2016, um, which talked about these these new products that uh, formula companies have have created and are putting a lot of money behind. These things called follow-on formulas and, and 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 formulas for older children or toddler formulas. They go by a lot of different names. And it's, in some sense, the companies invented these products. Um, to get around uh, the the restrictions and and um, and regulations in in certain countries around the marketing uh, of infant formula, so in certain countries it's it's prohibited. Companies are prohibited from marketing infant formula, and infant formula you know can be defined as you know formula for six months and under. Um, so these companies have created these new products to in effect circumvent those um, those reg regulations and restrictions. 
And what this, I think what this category of product does is actually create a fake feeding period. Um, these products are in many ways unnecessary and unhealthful. So in 2016, the World Health Organization said, you know what, these products are, you know, are, are unnecessary, um, but they're also, um, you know, used to replace breastfeeding. And therefore, they fall under the scope of the code, and therefore, they should be restricted. And industry absolutely hate, hates that guidance and that, 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 um, that resolution. They fought tooth and nail against it. Um, in fact, it wasn't just the formula industry that were fighting tooth and nail against it. It was also the dairy industry. So why the dairy industry, you think, you know, they're, they're supposed to be the good guys. Uh, well, <laughs> milk is, um, is, uh, is the number one ingredient in, in formula. And these products for older infants and, and toddlers were particularly attractive uh, because they're they one of the fastest uh, growing segments in the baby food category. So uh, you have to also consider that, you know, there's a global glut in dairy. We have too much product. Dairy prices are in the toilet. So, you know, these, these dairy companies in the dairy industry really wants to um, uh, ensure that the, this, this fast-growing segment of the infant formula market continues to grow because that's, that affects their bottom line. So they were very vocal against this resolution. And interestingly, the Obama administration at the time walked a pretty good line between the public health advocates on one side that said, you know what, these products are unnecessary. They're also really unhealthy. They're laden with sugar, uh, sodium. They're flavored. You have chocolate milk flavored toddler formulas and, and, and strawberry flavored toddler formulas. These things are basically sugar sweetened beverages for little kids who are super vulnerable. Um, so, you know, they said, okay, public health advocates, we hear you, but they got a tremendous amount of pressure from industry. So they ended up moving forward with a resolution in 2016. And they tried to, you know, they tried to negotiate the private profit versus public health side. And I think they did a fairly good job of it. But what we have now with, you know, this very pro-business friendly administration right. is, you know, is an administration that's probably willing to put private profit ahead of public health. And and that track record, you know, to, to any political observer or non-political observer, it seems like it's not only a trend line, as you mentioned, in with this administration, um, but maybe for the cynics among us, it seems like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Corporations will always have, as you mentioned earlier, the heft and might and sheer tonnage of a larger budget um, to out spend, out-compete, uh, and out-message, and maybe even out-lobby other smaller interests. Um, and, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, but it seems particularly saddening to me, uh, just at, both as an American citizen, but you know, also uh, the, the, a son who, whose parents um, once relied on basic education and, and awareness and, and access to information from organizations like yours to really understand what would be best um, to invest in, in their family and their little ones and their growth. And it, it would strike me that if there were ever one facet of, of American institution that even a Republican administration or a Democratic, Democratic administration would agree to not politicize by corporate giving, it would be that of the, the health and well-being of the American family uh, or the American mother. And it, it, it seems increasingly that federal standards uh, are are undercutting or making it really difficult to be a mom in general. Even zooming out a bit from you know breastfeeding in particular, and and the matters that have occurred at the WH or the World Health Assembly over the 
past several or past couple of months, you know, you have really anemic paid family leave policies that aren't robust. Um, on the one hand, you know, I, I have a buddy who works at the company Salesforce, and she's able to take, I think, somewhere around seven to eight months off after just having a little one. And I have other friends who uh, maybe work in the federal government, maybe they work in Congress, or maybe they even work at a private company, and they're only able to take a, a few weeks off. Um, that is a really, really tough position to put any young family and new family in a place where where you're trying to create policies that uh, celebrate the growth of American families, the bedrock of who America is, and frankly, and arguably the bedrock of most Republican messaging to always invest in the family, and yet not really invest in the policies that protect that family. Even aside from paid family leave, as you well know, you know I, I don't need to preach to the choir here, but there are uh, massive gaps in, in um, income and pay in corporations and, and in boardrooms between men and women. And it, when you start layering all of these things together, um, undercutting basic access to information and awareness around the health benefits of something seemingly as benign as breastfeeding. Um, when you start or when you don't start investing in robust paid family leave policies, when you still have a glaring gap in the way that men and women are paid, it seems that increasingly the identity and, and frankly sanctity of the American mother is that a big risk here. And I'm curious as someone that lives and, and breathes this kind of these challenges day in and day out and, and fights on behalf of, of those mothers, both at home and around the world. Um, is there something that we can do? Is there a sense of hope that you've seen in your advocacy that can pierce through some of those systemic challenges? Um, and, and, and if not, are there other actors that need to step up, maybe folks that don't consider themselves maternal health advocates in their day jobs, but other steps that we all can take just as community organizers or citizen activists to help support that space? Yeah, so I mean, you're so right to, to point out the importance of, uh, of paid family leave, uh, because that is a, a massive, massive barrier uh, for women who want to breastfeed. Uh, in this country, uh, the the rates um, at which women start out breastfeeding are actually really, really high. 80 to 90% of women start out breastfeeding. Uh, but that number drops off pretty precipitously, um, you know, in a matter of, of weeks um, because so many women have to go back to work. One in four women go back to work uh, within two weeks of having given birth. So how do we expect... Uh, women to care for themselves, care for their new babies, let alone breastfeed. Uh, so it's no wonder um, that uh, you know that so many mothers have to turn to, to formula. Um, the the policies around uh, protecting um, women's uh, you know women's access to, to healthcare, I think, is another really really important thing that we need to talk about. So you know we think um, you know that uh, that it should be a given that women have access to uh, comprehensive health care when they get pregnant because we know that it's really important that mom and baby uh, have access to doctors and get seen and, and taken care of by physicians. And at the time of childbirth, they have their, um, you know, their labor and delivery uh, costs covered um, under their health insurance. And then after they give birth, if they want to breastfeed, guess what? Uh, you know, they should have their health insurance uh, provide um, reimbursement to go see lactation consultants and um, and to get breast pumps and that sort of thing. But in the post-ACA uh, worlds, before the Affordable Care Act, before Obamacare, 
um, you know, many women had to buy a separate health plan or a, a rider to, to cover prenatal care, uh, labor and delivery, and there was no um, accommodation for uh, breastfeeding. So breastfeeding uh, support counseling, breastfeeding supplies are now covered under the ACA uh, Obamacare. And, you know, it's really important. It's part of the reason why, um, you know, breastfeeding rates in this country have started to move up. Uh, because more women are getting the support they need. Not all women, uh, and it's certainly we still have a long, long way to go. Uh, but the but the Affordable Care Act made a huge difference. It also included a provision um, that that said that workplaces have to make accommodations for lactating women. So uh, a broom closet or the toilet isn't a, an appropriate accommodation for a woman who has to express her milk, milk that she's going to end up feeding her baby when she goes home. So that's not a good place to pump. Uh, so the, the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, made it uh, mandatory for certain employers, especially large ones, that they had to provide a non-bathroom place for um, employees to express milk. Uh, so that's, you know, that's yet another policy example of, you know, of, of breaking down barriers uh, to breastfeeding, breaking down barriers to, to, to good mom and baby health. I mean, I did talk about how um, how important breastfeeding is to, to, to women's own health as, as, as much as it is for infants' health. Right. Um, you know, we should make sure, we should be investing in making sure that every baby in this country gets the strongest start to life. And that means, you know, starting with mom. Mom's health, her own health, her physical health, her emotional and mental health uh, have a huge impact on, um, on a baby's outcome and, and their prospects uh, to, you know, to, to ensure that they thrive and learn and grow. So it is, it is really critical and it's kind of shameful. The U.S. is not a friendly place uh, to, to be a mom. Too many moms struggle uh, to, you know, to provide for their families. Uh, certainly low-income parents have it, have it really hard. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they struggle to put food on the table, uh, to work jobs that don't have any paid leave. Uh, you know, again, before Obamacare, sometimes jobs didn't, you know, didn't provide comprehensive, affordable health insurance for workers. So there's a lot more that we can be doing to support all all women who want to have children and all families and, and kids to get the strongest start. And that's that's very well put, particularly with that that healthy start um, for life to life right out of the gates. And I'm curious, um, you know, it, it's often easy to think about the downstream impact that all of these steps may have on on the child and their development. Um, but you make a really, really good point, which is that this is just as much about the health of the mom herself and, and the family's well-being derivative of that. Uh, to what extent does access to to food or benefits, encouraging access to food, make a difference here? And and I ask that because you kind of have a, a very classic, um, almost left versus right debate at play here, right? You have corporate interests perhaps getting at the best of of public health outcomes because of, of moneyed interests at play. You also have this notion um, where you can bandy about values-based principles like choice or information or free speech. Um, but when you reconcile them with 
what actually happens on the ground, um, there it's not as philosophical as just saying free speech or choice. We're talking about access to to the resources, to pumps, et cetera, that you mentioned earlier, that may be varied in different neighborhoods. Um, you, you know, a lower income neighborhood, let alone access to certain products for both prenatal and postnatal care may be different from one zip code to another zip code. But even access to food, if you happen to be in a food desert, for example, or if you're of a social, a certain socioeconomic level, maybe you don't even have access um, to certain benefits. Um, and then layer on top of the sort of class corporate versus public interest debate, you have a classic kind of welfare versus no welfare debate. And I know that 1000 Days um, recently put out a statement with regards to the Senate's passage of the Farm Bill. Um, you know, for our listeners, the Farm Bill gets litigated about, you know, every four to six years in the United States um, to ensure how our agrarian economy gets supported and boosted. But within that Farm Bill, um, are supplemental appropriations for things like the SNAP program, um, which helps uh, working families, young mothers across the country um, access food when they're particularly hungry or impoverished. So I guess I'm just curious, you mentioned a number of, of policies that can play a role here, um, healthcare coverage, access to information, basic education. Um, is food a, a major component to this overall conversation? And if it is, how do we sort of square um, the debate between between food and breastfeeding versus sort of like welfare and subsidies to, to, to accessing that food? Or are those not separate debates and they're one and the same? Yeah, they, I don't think they're separate. So I would start with, you know, why, why 1,000 days? So the first 1,000 days is a critical uh, window of opportunity um, for, for young children uh, to get a, a really strong start to life. And why is that? It's because... A tremendous amount of, of growth happens in those first thousand days. The foundations for a child's brain development are laid down in those first thousand days, and nutrition is the fuel. Uh, the food, you know, the nutrition you get from food, that's the fuel that powers uh, uh, the, the development of a baby's brain, starting very early on in pregnancy, by the way. And it's, it's the foundation for lifelong health, and I would argue that it's also the foundation for more equitable beginnings. When kids don't get the, the nutrition they need, um, the, the damage can be irreversible. Uh, kids need nutrients that they get from food to, to power brain development. Um, and when, they're, you know, when they are lacking in those key nutrients um, and when infants and toddlers are growing up in homes that are food insecure, uh, they are more likely to suffer a condition called failure to thrive. That means that kids don't grow as fast or gain enough weight as healthy kids. And the damage done to a child's brain and body when he fails to thrive can be irreversible. And young children who fail to thrive are at serious risks for developmental problems later in life, which, of course, then uh, means higher costs, higher health care costs, higher educational costs. It means, you know, that that child may not grow up to be, uh, you know, sort of a, a productive member of the American workforce. Um, so you think about the first thousand days and how critical it is that children get the nutrition they need in that in those first thousand days to to help with their brain development, to set up sort of a, a healthy foundation for the rest of their life. And you think about it's actually an investment in the future of our society. Today's babies and toddlers gives us a glimpse of what our future holds as a country. They are the the American workforce of tomorrow. 
one that, you know, increasingly we're going to need that workforce to be healthy and highly skilled in order to compete in a, in a super global economy. And, you know, I think it's, it's not a question of, hey, whether it's, you know, we should pro- be providing welfare uh, programs or, or policies for, for low-income Americans. We all have a stake as to whether children get a strong start to life. We all suffer the consequences as a society. Um, when when they don't, and whether those are educational achievement gaps, higher healthcare costs, deeper deepening disparities, you know, higher incarceration rates, all of these things, you think about it, and, and so many of these things can be traced back to how well a baby fared in his or her first thousand days, and whether we really supported the family to give that child a really strong and healthy start to life. I think that you're absolutely right that the investments we make now um, will not only has the potential to pay dividends um, uh, way down the road and for future generations and at least for the lifetime of that child, uh, but it certainly does implicate uh, the competitiveness of our country in a intensively knowledge based economy. And and I'm curious, you know, just zooming out from this issue just a bit, you know, within the last several weeks um, in the United States, it's been particularly tough for many to see the treatment of of families and little ones uh, separated at the border, um, particularly in light of of this news in terms of investments that seem to align more so with corporate interests as opposed to um, a child's well-being. Another commentary on how the family is being invested in by policies of this administration is, is the concept of protecting the American family lost in America today, um, or is that an overly cynical way to paint what's going on? I think we have seen a tremendous outpouring of support from everyday Americans um, when it came to the news that children, especially young children, are being separated from their uh, from their parents who are trying to come to the United States to give their kids a, a better um, a better life because they're fleeing you know violence and poverty and just terrible situations back home and. I think that speaks to who we are as a country. Uh, I think that speaks to, you know, regardless that the policies of this administration don't always represent the the will of the American people, for better or for worse, right? For sure, for sure. And so, um, and and I think what we saw in terms of just the the massive public outcry and the massive, uh, you know, amount of of support that flooded to so many of the fantastic organizations that are doing tremendous work uh, to help these families. Uh, that are being separated and, and families that are uh, undergoing, um, you know, sort of this, this confusing and, and it seems like ever-changing immigration landscape, um, you know, I think that speaks to really, you know, who we are as a country. I think there's certain things that, that we, we as a nation hold sacred, and that's this notion that, you know, children belong with their parents and, you know, that, that we want to have you know, kids, especially little kids, to you know, grow up healthy and happy. I mean, I know that sounds very um, idealistic and, and Pollyanna, perhaps, but I think no, um, no, you know that's that's a, that's a value that you know most Americans hold dear, and most Americans you know will fight for. I really believe that. Absolutely, and and I think one critical element um, for all of our listeners to be aware of, and we've spoken to this in passing, but that organizations like yours 
1,000 Days doesn't just focus on that value here at home in the United States, but really encourages that same sense of maternal advocacy abroad and around the globe. And as you said, insofar as we still, um, as the will of our people gets expressed and reflected in that way, we can still export those values and those visions as best practices and as a, an appropriate moral compass around the world. Um, I, I'm curious, from your perspective, with this, you know, just to conclude, with the the assembly resolutions that get passed or that get debated, um, they certainly have global reach and global impact. When it comes to to your advocacy about basic tenets of investing in the mom's well being, in the child's well being, and and subsequently, you know, the, the country's well being, do the mandates or desires or the unique eccentricities, for lack of a better term, of how families are raised in different countries? make a difference in the way that we should be educating them or connecting them with resources. I guess more specifically, I mean, you know, something as the air quality or the urban topography, maybe higher altitudes, lower altitudes, um, or just, you know, access to food, all of these different variables in a country like China, um, where that variable set might be very different, say, in a country like Mexico or in India, does that change sort of the best practices as you see it in terms of investing in those first thousand days? Or are they fairly uniform across the country? And, and those are the best practices we can share with one another, regardless of where our nationalities are rooted. Yeah, so what a baby, what a mom and baby needs in the first thousand days is is universal. Um, you know, what a baby needs for, for healthy growth and development, for their brains to develop properly, for uh, their immune system to develop properly, uh, for them to thrive. It's it's the same. It doesn't matter if you're a baby born in India or a baby born in, in Indiana. Um, context, of course, is very different. Uh, so mothers in India have to worry a lot more about uh, perhaps, you know, water and sanitation. And for a long time, we thought here in Indiana, we didn't have to worry uh, a lot about water and sanitation. Well, we know with what's happening in Flint that we, we do. Uh, right. So the, the context can be different. Uh, but fundamentally, the, what, a, what, a, what a mother and a child need in those critical first thousand days is the same no matter what. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's one important takeaway um, that I hope, uh, you know, that I hope we can we can all agree on, regardless of your uh, political Politics, leanings or, right. or uh, where you sit on the on that spectrum. Um, so it's a, it was really terrific speaking with you today. Yeah, absolutely. Lucy, thank you so much for not only your advocacy, um, but also the whole team at 1000 Days and, and for continuing to to raise awareness around these issues um, that, you know, range from obesity to breastfeeding to malnutrition to anemia um, and do it when it's not just caught up in the, the press cycle of a New York Times headline. We really, really appreciate your leadership on this front. And thanks for joining American Enough. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. 
This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.